All right, this is the time in our service when a pastor will stand and preach the Word of God to us. So you're getting used to this. That pastor will begin in Malden. He'll drive up here. He'll land sometime as the liturgy is getting started, and we'll be here in time to do this with you guys. Both of our flocks are under the same preaching, seeing the same face, hearing the same text. If you're in smaller community with folks from the Malden Mission, you'll be able to run with them this week and pressing into this word. And we want to come with very humble hearts together today saying, Jesus, teach us and shape us by your word. We sit under the authority of the scripture. All right, we're spending this whole year preaching through the gospel according to Mark. Today we're going to come across a really strange word. It's a religious word. It's a Bible word, and we often don't know what to do with it. It's the word apostles. 99% of the time when you hear this word, it's only going to be in this kind of a setting when there's someone near you with the Bible. And probably 99% of the time when you hear that word, you really don't know what to do with it. Um, We confess the Nicene Creed that we are one, holy, Catholic, or universal, apostolic church. If you start reading the back end of your Bible, you will see that there's a book called the Acts of the Apostles. There's this loud guy, Paul, who keeps insisting that his apostleship is genuine. You keep coming across this word. But what does it mean? Well, depending who you talk to, you'll get a different answer if you say, hey, help me understand apostle and apostolic. If you talk to someone with ties to the Roman Catholic Church, they're going to come right at you with papal authority. And they will say, when you hear the word apostolic, you need to think pope. Because there is this unbroken succession of apostles with the apostolic mantle of leadership over all of Jesus' church. It started with the apostle St. Peter, and it's worked its way all the way down to Pope Benedict XVI, who's rolling in Rome right now. That's what you hear when you hear apostolic. If you then talk to a Pentecostal friend, they would say, no, no, no. When you hear apostolic, you want to hear signs and wonders. Our church today is supposed to walk in the same sign gifts that the apostles did. Healings, miracles, resurrections. The same thing is supposed to happen in our day. We need to be apostolic churches. If you drive up Route 1, there's the Fountain of Life Apostolic Church. If you go to their website, you'll see that Monday nights is personal finance night. Tuesday night is ladies night. And what's Wednesday night? It's the night of miracles. They have a miracle service on Wednesdays. Why would they do that? Because they would say apostolic means Miraculous signs and wonders happening right now. If you went and talked to someone who says, I am an apostle, it's on my business card over here, they would say it's none of those things. Apostle means independence. Not having to answer to anyone but Jesus for the ministry that he's got you set to. And so we really need to break ties with denominations and networks and start our own fresh work today. Be autonomous, get back to what the apostles used to be about. That's what apostolic means. I could keep running down the list of things for you. If I wanted to, I'll stop there. You get the point. What happens with us? We go, "Eh, I don't know what to think anymore. That's all over the map. Can I just take this word apostle and stick it in the draw somewhere and keep it with these other things that I'm not sure about, like 
onomatopoeia. Remember that from ninth grade? Organic chemistry. The whole appeal of NASCAR. The whole Twitter thing. Are you guys still trying to figure that out? I don't get it. That's the way I am with apostles. I don't get it. But we're not allowed to do that. And that's because there's some beautiful and important words from the apostle Paul that I want you to hear. He's writing to a church like ours and he says, you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with all the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Did you hear that? When we hear apostles, we want to think foundation. Our lives, our church is being built on the foundation of the apostles. And that's big. Everybody in here knows, like Matt did with our children, the most important part of a physical structure is the foundation. Joffrey was leading the landscaping charge. Have you seen it over there? It's pretty. Check it out. And over on the side of the building, there's these numbers, 1930, um, etched in stone on the foundation. And I remember being here with our building inspector, taking a look at the place to make sure it was, it was worth the pennies that we paid for it. And I remember thinking, man, 1930. I hope somebody was really taking seriously what they were doing on that day because a lot of our cash is about to go in a building that's built on this foundation from 80 years ago. Paul is saying the same thing. In his wisdom and in his grace, the Father has chosen to build his church on the foundation of the apostles, their lives, their teaching, their testimony. And what our text does today is it gives us a really beautiful glimpse, and I'm hoping a very helpful glimpse at the very beginnings of Jesus starting to lay that foundation. So let's hear the scripture again and we'll pray and we'll press into this. It says that Jesus went up to the mountain. He called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12. Simon, whom he also named Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, whom he named Boanerges, or the sons of thunder. And then there was Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. It's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, would you, for the glory of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, teach us today what we need to learn. Give great assurance to us that our hope, the thing that our lives and this church is built on, is a firm foundation, that you knew what you were doing, that you've given us apostles for our good and for your glory. Come and teach this congregation this morning. It's my prayer. It's been my prayer. Answer now, I pray. Amen. Okay, let's set the stage for the text. If you've been running with us, Jesus has been going about doing ministry, and he's been calling disciples 
but he's been doing it kind of indiscriminately. What I mean by that is he would see people and he would say, follow me, follow me, follow me, follow me. And they're following him. And there's men and there's women and there's older folks and there's younger folks. Where Jesus goes, they go. They're watching and learning. But in today's text, Jesus does a different kind of a calling. This is not an on-the-fly, open-ended call. This is a very specific, very serious, very premeditated appointing of men that he would train and he would equip to work beside him. The language here in Greek, if you knew it, and I don't know it, but I read about it, so I'm taking this to be true, is much more solemn and serious than any that we've seen in this gospel before. Jesus is calling an exclusive group, disciples with a capital D, or his words, the one we're pressing into, apostles. Let's work the text. It says first that Jesus went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Okay, question. If you're watching TV late at night, and you know you shouldn't be watching TV late at night, but you don't feel like reading or exercising and you can't sleep, So you're going TNT, TBS, USA, TNT, TBS, USA. You know that triad? You're looking for a bad movie. And you find it. And it's late at night, and it's kind of dark, and it's kind of misty, and you see this dark car with tinted windows roll up to a city street corner and roll the windows down about four inches. What's about to happen? It's something bad, right? A drug deal, a a carjacking, something that you don't want to be a part of. You know that's coming. All right, let's say you're watching the Celtics game this afternoon and Rajon Rondo gets fouled and he steps to the free throw line. What's about to happen? Did someone say brick? Yes. The brick about to head toward the rim right here. You better get all your rebounders in the lane because the ball is going to be caroming in a second. You know it. Let's say you go out to your mailbox, you open it up, and you get that red envelope from Netflix. And you think Schwarzenegger's in the movie, but you open it and your wife ordered it and it's Jennifer Lopez. (laughs) What do you know is about to happen? 90 minutes of torture that you will not get back. You know that. Some things in life set you up and you know what's coming. All right, here's our question. If you're reading the Bible and you see a miracle-working prophet heading up to a mountain, what's about to happen? you know that God is about to reveal himself and call to himself and form a covenant people. You remember Moses in the desert after Egypt? Where does God lead him? He leads him to the mountain. Moses goes up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and then what does Moses do? He calls to himself the people. And it is there for the very first time that a new entity is formed. The older covenant people of God is made there. They are Israel comes into being. And now in Mark's gospel, what do we have? We've got Jesus. And what's he doing? He's going up to a mountain and he's calling people to himself, somber and serious. What is Jesus doing? Yeah, you know it. Just like Moses, he is beginning to form a new covenant people. And he's starting right here with these 12 men. If you weren't sure of this, the next verse makes it totally plain for your brain so that you can't miss it. It says, and he appointed 12 
whom he also named apostles. Now this word appointed is much stronger than we think of, right? So we appointed Dave Pothier to wear that crazy orange vest and work the parking out there today. That was an appointing. This is the word for made or created. It's the kind of word from the creation account, something that didn't exist, being called into being. Jesus is doing something new here from scratch. He's making something of this team of 12 that did not exist a few minutes prior. And how many does he call? 12. Okay. If I said to you, I need 435 people to come rally to me this afternoon, what would you know I was talking about right away? Did nobody in here pass American History 101 sophomore year? Come on. Wow, this country is in disrepair. (laughs) It's 435 members of your House of Representatives. So if you were a good American, you would know right away. Whoa, this guy, Matt, is not happy. He is remaking government. He just got 435 people. All right, this one's for Bill. What if I called 53 dudes and I said, meet me down at Pine Banks? Come on, you fantasy football freaks. What's that? It's 53 active players on an NFL roster. You would say, Cruz, he's remaking the Patriots. That loss to the Jets in the playoffs was unacceptable and pathetic, and he is starting over. Numbers are important. If you were a Jew and I said to you that Jesus from Nazareth just went up to a mountain, all serious, and he called 12 men to himself. This might not jump out of the Bible at you and I, but we would know right away what is going on. Jesus is remaking Israel. The prophets had predicted a great restoration of the 12 tribes which had been scattered at this point. Jesus is reconstructing the people of God. He's doing it. But he's not going to find 12 representatives of Joseph's sons. He's starting with these 12 men. And to show you even more strongly that Jesus is creating a new people, what does Jesus do? He gives them a new name. Did you hear that? And he named them apostles. New designation, new status. You're no longer fishermen You're no longer tax collectors or zealots or carpenters. Something new is happening with you. You are apostles, the first among countless millions who will be a part of the new covenant people of God. I'm building a house, and my foundation is going to be you. All right, now what's missing from the Moses Mount Sinai story? It's the tablets of stone. It's the law as Moses was calling the people, he was calling them, centering them around God's revelation in this law. There's no law here because Jesus is doing what? It's very important. He is calling these people to him, to his person. This community is being formed around the person of Jesus. We hear this really beautifully in the text. What was the first part of the apostolic job description? He Pointed the 12, he named them apostles so that they might be with him. Yeah. Now, at one level, this is the way that they would learn back in this day. So they didn't do school like we do school with a three ring binder or a laptop and a person lectures and you take notes and you read the book and you study hard and you pass the test and now you've learned. Not the way that it worked in this day. Uh, 
This was face-to-face discipleship, apprenticeship, we might call it. Hands-on, day and night, town after town, learning, hearing, literally memorizing the parables and the sayings and the teachings of the master. And what's the benefit of that kind of discipleship that you don't get if you don't know the person who's doing the teaching? Well, here it is. By the end of a few years with this teacher, you will not only have the content down pat, you will know the man. You will know him. By being with Jesus day and night for three years, these guys were not only able to teach the teachings of Jesus, to get his gospel straight and right, they had become eyewitnesses to the person of Christ. John ends up saying it to us like this in his gospel. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace, full of truth. Are you feeling this? Jesus called me. He called us to be with him. I know what he was like. I've seen him in every possible circumstance. And he is good. He is different good. He is holy. He is the son of God. Glorious. I've seen it. And so the very first call for these apostles was, first thing, be with Jesus. And so that, what was the second thing? So that he might send them out. He might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons, also to heal people the same way that he had been doing. Here's where we're getting to the core of the word apostle. It means someone who is sent by another, entrusted with a message, and they get to go represent that person to the world. So there's work involved here. This is not just learn and do nothing with it. This is learn and work. Learn and work. Jesus says, as my apostles, you're not just going to stand and watch and memorize. You're going to come alongside me. You're going to do the work with me. We'll see this in chapter 6 very clearly. And when I'm gone, you're going to lead the charge and carry on the work. I'm getting you ready now. Did you hear the word authority in there? Because that's built into apostles. I am giving you 12 authority in a unique way to fulfill my ministry, to carry my word, to do my works. Okay, everybody in here should feel like their shoulders are like leaning down right now with the weight and the intensity of this word apostle that we're learning together. We're really early in Mark's gospel, but Jesus is beginning to form his covenant people This will eventually become the church. And he's starting with the foundation. And it is their testimony, their witness, that will be the thing that the church gets built on. So here's what an apostle is. Someone who was chosen by Jesus to be with Jesus. To be changed by Jesus. And then to go out from Jesus, to herald the message of Jesus, and to build the people of Jesus. Is that a big job? Ooh, that's big. That's as big as it gets. So what happens next in our text should just be astounding to everybody who is in this room because Mark runs down the list of people that Jesus chose for this appointing and it does not run the way that you would expect. 
All right, we're talking NFL today, so let's keep doing that. You guys know about the NFL draft. Do you know what that is? This is when the professional teams have to select from college the players who will be a part of their franchise going forward. Every year, NFL teams get together to do this. You would not believe the amount of time and energy and resources and sweat that goes into the process of selecting these players. There's intelligence exams, and we're talking about college football players here, so I think they use crayons for these. But they do have intelligence exams to make sure they can learn the playbook. Physicals from multiple doctors, they put them through these combines and test their skills. They hire personal, uh, personal investigators, private eyes, to look into their background. They call the girls that they went to the prom with in eighth grade just to make sure. It's like, hey, this is Bill Belichick. When he took you to the prom, what was he like? Was he nice? Did he get there on time? How did he dance? I need to know. This is important. We're going to draft this guy. Why is this such a big deal? All you hear on sports radio is, did we draft the right guy? Who did we draft? I hope we draft the right guy. It's because millions and millions of dollars, wins and losses, the, the heart of a city, in a sense, is at stake in this draft. That's why it's so serious of a process. They try really hard to draft the most talented, most likely to succeed players. Does everyone get that? We get that. It's intuitive. Whether you are running the admissions department at Berkeley, or you're recruiting fresh blood for Brewer and Company, or you're just pulling a dodgeball team together, what does everybody do? What do you do? You go for the best, the strongest, the fastest. That's how we do it. And so, if that works that way in all the rest of our lives, what would you expect Jesus to be doing in choosing 12 apostles to lay the foundation of his church? You're expecting the names to be the most brilliant, most influential, most educated, the Harvard grads, maybe Stanford, I don't know, Yale. Specifically in this context, train religious leaders or influence, uh, influential political leaders the Pharisees or the Herodians, that's who we're expecting to see be called to be apostles. But what happens? Jesus calls the most motley crew of people of any list of names that you could imagine. Most of them just hardworking, peasant class guys, tax collector, zealot. They're all over the map, and it's not one name that you and I would have drafted. Not one. Anyone watching would have said, Jesus, time out, hang on, hold on. This is foundation. This is big. You need some help in the selection process. You want people from Jerusalem, not ugh, Galilee. You want people with the six and seven figures, not the, the four and a half over here. And you definitely don't want uneducated, common folks. You want people who, who are religious leaders who have potential to get some work done and do some heavy lifting. And then as you continue to read in Mark's gospel, you become even more surprised. And you say, these guys are slow to believe and slow to understand and slow to get it. Oh, no. Jesus messed up who he chose to be the foundation of the people of God. Well, you or I, we would have been wrong. And that's because apostleship is not about the apostle. It's about Jesus. The reason that Peter and James and John and Matthew and Thomas and the rest are a sure foundation 
is not because they had great ability. It's not because they had great intelligence. It's not because they had great influence. They were not savvy. They were not winsome. They were not influential. They were not courageous. It's because of this. It's because they had Jesus. Or we might say, because Jesus had them. And that's all that matters. We see this really beautifully in the story from Acts chapter 4. Two of the apostles, Peter and James, get thrown in front of the Sanhedrin, which was the uppity religious court of their day. And there's these pious, august men on this body, uh, the most prominent theologians, and they're looking way down their noses at these two Galilean fishermen. And they look side to side and they say, is this a joke? Are you kidding me? How did this get on our docket? There is no way that these guys can stand before who we are. But then Peter opens his mouth and John opens his mouth. And they talk about Jesus and his gospel and his death and his resurrection and his salvation. And they make this beautiful, coherent statement of the Christian faith that Christ had given to them. And the text says these words. You'll love them. When the Sanhedrin saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astounded, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You love that? All right, seven mile right. I need you to feel that right there with me today. This is why we love this text from Acts, from Mark chapter 3. This is why we love these men and their testimony. This is why we are anxious to call ourselves an apostolic church. It's not because we believe there's a perfect line of succession and apostolic authority is invested in one man in Rome. It's not because we believe that signs and wonders have to follow us the same way that they testified the legitimacy of the apostles. It's not because we think we're starting a fresh new work and we're getting back to the apostolic days like no one else has been able to do. It's not any of those things. Here's what it is. It's because Peter and James and John and later Paul, they were with Jesus. Apostleship is about Jesus. And so, yes, Seven Mile Road's going to be an apostolic church. We believe that Jesus, in his love for us, has given us these men. We're committed to what we call the apostolic, with a capital A, teaching. The texts of scripture that have come through these men. We're always looking back to the inspired words that God, by his spirit, gave them after Jesus had shaped them for three years. This is what we're doing in the Gospel of Mark, right? Mark was a student of Peter and the other apostles, and their stories and their words have come through him to us in Scripture. We trust that Jesus wanted us to build our doctrine, our lives, our salvation on the foundation, the testimony, the teaching of these apostles. Okay, now admittedly, that drives Boston culture crazy. They just can't understand this. This is just nuts, what's happening right in here. They're like, Matt, would you give me a break with the Bible? I mean, seriously, you got a community that's still reading the Bible? Would you please come out of ancient Palestinian history with the rest of us? It's 2011, Boston, Massachusetts. And what they say is there's so many better 
choices for apostles, for foundational voices to shape your life. See, Bostonian culture is not against apostleship per se. They can't be. All of us necessarily have apostles that have authority in our lives. Their words, their songs, their writings, they shape us. What Boston culture says is, we've got a much better list than this silly list from Mark chapter 3. I mean, we've got Mick Jagger, and we've got John Lennon, and we've got Oprah Winfrey and Ellen, both of them. Those are voices we want to hear. Sigmund Freud, Charles Darwin, Stephen Hawking, Christopher Hitchens. If we're getting religious, Mary Baker Eddy, Muhammad, better apostles than yours. We've got Dan Brown and Henry David Thoreau. We got the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We got Eminem. His stuff is awesome. Bill Gates, Barack Obama, Glenn Beck, whatever the spectrum is that you go borrow, the book from the library. Brilliant, influential, creative, intelligent people. And what do they say? They say, Cruz, how are you going to choose Peter and James and John and Paul? And what's the answer? It's not about Peter and James and John and Paul. They're not like the Justice League with their capes on going to come save the world because they're awesome. It's about Jesus. Jesus appointed those men to be apostles. Not Mick Jagger, not Muhammad, not Christopher Hitchens. And we are happy to humble ourselves and say, Jesus, we trust you. What you did on that day at that mountain, what you continued to do for those three years, we trust who you chose. We trust how you taught them. We're going to build on them. Capital A, Apostolic Church. And Seven Mile Road is also supposed to be becoming a lowercase a, how do I do that? A lowercase a apostolic church. Here's what we mean by that. I'm committed to seeing you, and you should be committed to seeing me, and we should be committed to seeing us fulfilling the ministry of the apostles. This is what we're doing up here in this room today, right? The first thing that we're doing is seeking to have you be people who center your lives and your stories on Jesus. If you envision your life, you should think, I'm just like an apostle. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be near him. I want to let him shape me. And not just be with Jesus for my own sake in a holy huddle, but the reason we're in a half-empty room. This isn't even half-empty, is it? We're in a 65% full room instead of the 120% full room we've been in for the last year is why. We want to see ourselves as a sent people. We, too, are members of the missional household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We are on the street corner to testify, in line with the apostles, to the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. Easter Sunday is when we get all jacked and pumped about that, right? Right? Because this is the day that Jesus became the cornerstone. This is the remembrance of that day. It was on the first empty tomb Sunday that Jesus became the cornerstone. Read the apostles' teachings and they'll talk in that way. The one who was crucified was risen for the dead. He has become the cornerstone. In other words, 
Jesus' body was beaten and broken and bloodied and buried. But on the third day, the son was brought back to life by the father, to all of our surprise. And he was established as the rock that the church would be built on. Now, we don't see Jesus with our own eyes on Easter Sunday morning, right? He's got about 60 seconds to break through the sky if today's the day and you're going to see him with your own eyes before I'm done preaching. We won't. We see Christ by faith one day face to face. But who did see the risen Jesus, heart pumping, voice speaking with their own eyes? Who was it? Yeah, it was the apostles, the ones that he called this day, the ones that he shaped, the ones that he sent They saw Jesus alive. This is a part of what makes them apostles, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. What had been a weak and cowardly and pathetic group of men became a strong, fearless, valiant preachers and martyrs anchored to the cornerstone of Jesus, the foundation for who we are becoming as a church. And so today, will you receive their testimony with me by faith in your heart and build well on that foundation together, centering everything on the cornerstone, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray that that would happen. Jesus, you're building your church. You're not going to stop. You're going to keep building your church and keep extending grace and keep forgiving sin and keep transforming hearts, and keep saving men and women and children from your wrath, for your glory, to life with you. I pray that we would not waver from our commitment to be shaped by the ones that you would have us be shaped for because you're a good shepherd who loves us. I pray that we would stand firmly on the foundation of the apostles, loving who they were, what they said, making their message our own. And I also pray, God, that in your grace, starting today in this room right here, that you would start to turn us outward to be sent with the word of God on our lips and in our lives, testifying to the risen Christ, the crucified one who died for our sins in our place and rose again that we might inherit the kingdom of God, that we would have your spirit on us just like the apostles did, that this would be for your glory, Father, for our joy, for the good of many in Melrose. Pray that you hear that prayer this morning and you would come and you would answer it. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to God's word with me. At this time, we come to the height of our service to the table of Jesus. What a magnificent grace that we get to feast with our King in this way. We are remembering his death. We are remembering his resurrection. We are remembering the life that he's given us, these simple elements, bread and cup. If you know Jesus and you love Jesus, you've been baptized into his name, you have, he has become your salvation. This meal is for you. We'll all come down and take the bread and the cup and then go back to your seats. I'm type A, so let's come down the middle aisle today and then you can come around the sides. This is the first time we're trying this. We'll be standing and singing as we do this and then we'll all take the bread and the cup together and we'll spend the rest of the time in this gorgeous space uh, singing to the glory of God. Let's feast together.